So it's that aspect of also, in addition to that, again, educating the public about also their role in digesting those information and also being responsible in thinking about, am I actually looking at a fact or is just a created or hallucinated information that I'm receiving? Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence, AI, stands at the forefront of technological evolution with experts predicting that it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, but it could also negatively impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling innovation? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives, from industry leaders to government officials to advocacy groups. Together, they address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Dr. Haniye Mahmoudian with us today. She's a global AI ethicist at Data Robot. She's also a member of the National AI Advisory Committee that is tasked with advising the president on artificial intelligence. I invited her on this show as it is very important to get different perspectives toward framing AI legislation. And getting a perspective on AI from an AI ethicist is also very important. Welcome, Dr. Mahmoudian. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Thanks for having me, and the pleasure is mine. Wonderful. Dr. Mahmoudian, President Biden announced a sweeping executive order on October 30th. Can you tell our audience what are your thoughts about this EO? So it's definitely a first step. It's great to see that we are taking steps with regards to taking action to think about how we can regulate risk, AI, and address some of the risks that have been talked about around AI, and also thinking about how that would affect innovation. So this executive order tries to address all of that, whether if it's around, as I mentioned, risks of AI, how we should be thinking about it and addressing them, concerns around privacy, but it's also brings in the, the element of workforce which to some extent is going to be impacted with the advancement of AI, especially with the foundation models and generative AI. But at the same time, it also creates opportunity for us to think about how we can upskill our workforce or provide that education for our younger generations to be able to get involved in the area of AI and broaden the access to these type of educations and advancements. So the executive order tries to address all of these components. To some extent, you might think that it's not detailed enough, but at the same time, we need to view this as a first step to think about, okay, here's what we should be thinking about. What are the next steps that we can take? And those can come as uh, potential later regulations and legislations that would come out of the Congress. So... What you're saying is a good first step, but obviously an executive order, Dr. Mahmoudian, is limited because a subsequent president can change it, 
cancel it, etc. So we need legislation. Dr. Mahmoudin, you mentioned something which I think is a very relevant point, is the reskilling of our workforce. There have been all kinds of studies, you know, McKenzie and others, they talk about, hey, it could impact 30% of our workforce. And you see the polls that talk about where people are really worried about their jobs. You touched upon this, and the EO also talks about, from an immigration standpoint, bringing in the best and the brightest also. Can you just carry this conversation forward in terms of the reskilling? How do we get our workforce? Because there could be potential opportunities or there could be challenges too. Absolutely. So actually, this is also part of what some of the NIAC's recommendation tried to tackle as part of one of the working groups that we have, which is specifically on workforce, thinking about what are the potential recommendations that this committee can provide to the president with regards to workforce. Exactly as you said, creating this campaign or providing this type of education. And we need to think about that for things like this, for skilling our workforce, there is a need for private-public partnership, bringing both the expertise that we have from private sector with regards to AI and also providing that the public sector, the way that they can provide that outreach by combining these two and also nonprofit organizations and NGOs, bringing all of that as a stakeholder for this process really enables us to push the education and providing this, whether if it's in a formal or informal type of access to this educational material, it can be outsourced, but both at the federal level by taking actions, but also at local level through these NGOs and nonprofits. So we need to think about both at the small scale and also at the large scales. And we need to bring all these different stakeholders together in order to be able to achieve that. So you're making a very important point, Dr. Mahmoudian, because we had an education expert a couple of days ago. And what you're saying is a public-private partnership is important. Do you think we should also get maybe community colleges in our discussion? 40% of our students in this country, most people, I don't know if you're aware, get educated through community colleges. Everybody can't afford a four-year degree. So why not have them in the discussions too? And we have not seen anybody. We hear, see all these hearings and other stuff, and we are working right now with community colleges. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Mahmoudian? It's definitely important to bring those community colleges as well. But what I would also add to that is right now what we have in some of the way that we advertise for jobs with regards to AI. We have criteria that PhDs in computer science or these kind of qualifications that doesn't necessarily translate to the actual job, but we have it in our job postings. And those are the types that actually this community college, as, as much as I'm 100% aligned with you in bringing them and the importance of them, but unfortunately, those qualifications exclude these community colleges. So in addition to bringing community college into the conversation, but we also need to think about how we can address one of those mismatch qualifications that you see in industry they put for these type of jobs. So it's a combination of both. Educating also the private sector with regards to what is relevant for these type of roles and how community colleges, they can create these curriculums that would be relevant to those job skills. 
I think you make a great point there that we are in the advertisements, they're over hiring where, you know, you might not need a PhD in machine learning, but when you put something like that or a master's or something like that, we are excluding a whole range of people, whether it's community colleges or others. And I think that needs to also be addressed, Dr. Mamudin. That's a very good point. Dr. Mamudin, while the executive order was going on across the Atlantic, the EU also got itself together and they reached a political consensus on December 8th on the EU AI Act. What are your thoughts on this, Dr. Mamudian? So the EU AI Act has been around for over two years when they started in 2021. It is an interesting approach in a sense that they come in with defining a risk framework of how we evaluate an AI use case. And based on where they land in this risk framework, whether they're high risk, uh, limited risk, or minimal risk, organizations need to take certain approach and steps to be compliant. So in this, it gives this clarity to organizations based on their use case, how they should be, you know, setting up their processes. So it definitely helps to remove those ambiguities. Then sometimes, many times, actually, organizations have the challenge of thinking about how I should be thinking about the risks, how I should be thinking about the benefits, and how should I act? And this, the framework that they provide in AI Act is actually trying to bring that clarity into the conversation and also put some process in place as part of their conformity assessment. What are the requirements? Obviously, there are some, some of them are at the high level, so we don't have a lot of details around how that can look like, but at least it provides a framework. Another thing that I appreciate about the draft that they have right now, and it's been recently approved, as you mentioned, is the fact that they acknowledge that the landscape is changing, right? What we consider right now as maybe a limited risk or minimal risk, five years from now, our opinion might change, or maybe even a new type of technology comes in. So our framework needs to be flexible. The fact that they allow for updating this, the framework, what would constitute a high risk? Maybe we want to revisit that list of banned or prohibited use cases five years from now. So these are the type of flexibility that a legislation or a regulation really needs to be robust, but at the same time, be flexible and agile that can be adapted to new technologies and the advancement. So what you're saying, obviously, that the AI technology is going to change. You know, we have had LLMs, now we have multimodal, we have agents, we probably will have AGI at some point. The policy needs to be flexible to be aware of the technology. Now, Dr. Mamoudian, for our listeners, the EU got the GDPR. Now, they have this bill which will come into force in 2025. And for all the members of Congress and Senate who we have talked to on this podcast, they don't think we're going to have legislation until 2025. We might have something incremental next year as an election year. So what is your view? How do we balance it? Are we going to have the same thing like the GDPR that we're going to have to live with the EU AI Act, uh, the companies that we have? Now, obviously, I heard that France is a little not in sync with this bill because they have some, you know, companies like Mistral and a bunch of others, but maybe you can shed some light for us on this. Well, exactly as you mentioned, EU has been 
generally on the front line of regulation in these regards. So it's not necessarily surprising that they are the first one coming up with AI Act. But I would say in the US, the approach is slightly different. We are more in trying to balance regulations, making sure that we are providing enough space for innovation. But at the same time, we may not have regulations by that time, but at least there are efforts going on. We have NIST putting out their framework. It's not mandatory, obviously, but at the same time, it provides that guidelines, creates the framework that organizations can use. Because these things like, for example, the uh, AI RMF was based on the collaboration between the input from private sector, from academia, and other civil societies and other organizations. So it tried to incorporate all of that. And organizations can use this. Similarly, based on the executive order, we now have the USAI Safety Institute that's going to tackle some of the um, aspects of AI safety. And what comes out of that would be public. So organizations can actually use those findings to improve their system. So we still have these mechanisms. And as part of the USAI Safety Institute, we also have the consortium that creates that platform for private sector to collaborate with academia, with civil society, to really think about in a multi-stakeholder forum, what do we need to think about safety when it comes to generative AI, both from the theoretical and conceptual level, but also from the practical enterprise level, how we should be addressing these components, methodologies that needs to be put in place. So these type of processes really enable organizations to adapt and also use what's available to them. I'm sure you're familiar with the Singapore's approach. So they have this toolkit that's available for organizations to use to evaluate their AI systems, right? So imagine something similar to that, that organizations can freely use to evaluate their own systems. A lot of times when we see problems in regards to AI that has gone wrong, it's not that the builders intentionally wanted a bad AI system, but rather the problem was that, first of all, lack of ethical education, that was the reason, but also the fact that they didn't know how to do it. So by having these type of tools or evaluation metrics and frameworks available to organizations, now they would be able to use it within their own workflow and also evaluate their systems before putting it in deployment or even in deployment, be able to continually monitor it. So these are all different aspects that it may not be regulation, but still it enables uh, organizations to, I'm not necessarily fond of the term, but self-regulating themselves till the point comes that the U.S. is ready to have a formal regulation with regards to AI. We still have these tools that we can leverage from. Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI and sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. So what you're saying is that we still have a lot of tools that are still available. So 
When you look at it and your role, Dr. Mahmoudin, what do you see as the biggest ethical risk now in the AI systems that are being developed and used? What worries you the most? Education. In a lot of situations, what I see here is lack of both with regards to AI literacy and also responsible AI aspect of it. So when you're thinking about building an AI system, there are different stakeholders, personas involved in the process, right? We have the executives who have, may have some ideas about how and where we can use AI. We have the technical data engineering, data science, and ML engineering team. We have the IT group, and also we have the end user, whether if it's an internal team within our organization, whether it's a customer, or end user can be individuals or groups that these tools will be applied to. And for each of these groups, we need to have a proper resources and education with regards to AI. But senior executives need to know about AI and responsible AI is different from what a data scientist needs to know. Data scientists would need to know about the technical aspect of it, mathematical definitions. Maybe for senior executives, we may need to focus it on risks and benefits because that's the part that they it's a challenge for them. They may not really know what are the risks of an AI system. So when you give them a use case that maybe this is an idea that we can pursue in our organization and use AI for it, they may not necessarily know a certain risks of it. So if we educate them with regards to risks, with regards to how they should be thinking about responsible use of AI, a lot of those headlines that we might see on the news would disappear because they would proactively think about, should I actually think about my use case in this way? Am I formulating my problem in an appropriate way or am I creating bias when I'm formulating this way? Similarly, on the end user side, sometimes they don't know what went inside of it and they don't know how to use an AI system. A lot of times the expectation is that, well, AI is always right, right? So they may not really question it, but by having those education around AI, its limitations and how to responsibly use that tool, we can also eliminate a lot of concerns there. So for me, what concerns me the most is that lack of end-to-end -end education with regards to both AI and the responsible AI side of it. So it's education. I think that's what your focus is. So just to carry that forward a little bit, how can communities that have been historically marginalized, how can they participate and benefit from the advances in AI because, you know, we see this whole digital divide conundrum. Is that going to continue with AI too, Dr. Mahmoudin? If nothing done, definitely we still would see that the gap that we currently have. We touched on a little bit here and there in our conversation that diversity of stakeholders is very important. So when we are thinking about building an AI, building a tool, we need to bring that diverse stakeholders into our process in, from the beginning, from the way that right at the beginning when we are thinking about defining our problem and starting our use case, understanding what are the impacts of this tool on different communities. And in order to truly be able to understand those impacts, we need to have the outreach. We need to bring their perspective into play and into our conversation. 
Another thing that I would add, which is also around the education that we talked about earlier, that the wide reach for education enables that those marginalized groups that may not really be part of our current AI workforce, we would be able to see more of them in the workforce and benefit from their perspective. So having that outreach for our younger generation, but also from within our workforce, the upskilling would enable us to have a more diverse group of people who are working on an AI use case. And that way, we would be able to both create AI systems that would be beneficial to everyone and reduce biases and also in general, reduce that gap that we right now see in our society. So, Dr. Mahmoudian, let's say if an AI system causes harm, then who should be held liable? Is it the developer, the deployer, the user? I mean, you touched on it that sometimes these developers have these systems, they unintentionally are doing it. But our society is always looking to find somebody who has caused harm. So who is it the developer, deployer, user, or all of them who should be held responsible? I would say we need to put a governance processes in place. When you have a robust governance processes, that would define accountability for each role. As I mentioned, you have, as part of this AI pipeline, you have executives who may define what a AI system, the project is, and what kind of problems you're working on. You have data science team or doing their magic of building the models, evaluating them. You have IT team who puts it within their infrastructure or create the new infrastructure for it. And even the people who are the teams that are using it. So each of those individuals could be responsible. So having a robust governance processes in place, first and foremost, enables us to actually avoid those type of negative impacts, but also creates that accountability framework as well. So for example, we can run an audit and see, well, maybe it was the data science team that didn't properly evaluate the data and the data carried some bias, or they didn't properly mitigate the bias uh, through technical means as part of the model evaluations. Or maybe it was the deployment team that didn't properly monitor the system and have a robust process in place that when system behaves in a way that it was not intended to do, they didn't have, they weren't alerted and they didn't intervene in a timely manner. Or whether if it was the end user who didn't use the system properly, right? Because for many reasons, they didn't know how it works. There wasn't enough explanation for them. Whatever the reason might be, this governance process really enables us to track and hold people at each stage accountable. Because it might be that when the system goes wrong, it might be even at the first step when we are exploring the idea, we didn't properly evaluate for risks. So people at that stage, they need to be held accountable as well. Not only people who are building it or people who are deploying it or using it. So that's why this type of governance processes really enable us to have that process in place to be able to identify and hold people accountable when things go wrong. So strong governance systems, I think, uh, is what you're saying is probably going to help us in this. Dr. Mahmoudian, this question is relating to concentration of power of AI in a few companies. It's also about open sourcing. So 
there's a big debate on should we have open sourcing not open sourcing where do you come out on this side open source really created that opportunity for us to democratize access to the technology right so that is definitely the foundation and we need to have that i think one of the challenges that we see right now with open source as much as we wanted these systems to be accessed by everybody but that also means that bad actors can access it too how we should be addressing that what kind of guardrails we can put in place also for example with frontier models that the big tech currently holds the access to them they do all these internal testing red team there are risks that are known to them the way that they evaluate them with regards or safeguards that internally they put on these tools but for open source models we don't have that we don't have a red teaming process to truly enable us to understand the risks and shortcomings of these tools and large models so i think the approach that we need to be taking is we need to have open source but we also need to provide the resources to have those evaluations the robust testing red teaming and how to provide that guardrails for users to use it as i said the only challenge that we have is when it gets to the back actors how do we need to address that aspect of it but beyond that absolutely there's no doubt that we need to have open source so i think what you're saying is open source with some guardrails or some kind of a measure maybe hide the weights or something of that nature is what you're basically saying should dr mamudin companies have a legal duty to disclose when they're using ai systems absolutely because one of the things sometimes us as the end users have a little bit of a challenge with is exactly not knowing at this point am i talking to a chatbot or am i talking to a real person right now so it's definitely important for us to have that disclosure because when i'm talking to a real person it's a whole different aspects of trust that i may or may not have with regards to ai so having that disclosure really enables the end user to make an informed decisions if they're comfortable with the response that the ai chatbot is giving them perfect but they need to have that opt-in that they still need to talk to a real human in order to make sure that they they have all the information they need what you're saying is that they should definitely have the responsibility to disclose Dr. Mamudian final question knowing how valuable your time is we have a election coming up in this country presidential senate house and actually there are many democracies that have elections there's a big concern about deep fakes the president's executive order addressed this with watermarking technology what are your thoughts about this are you concerned what are your thoughts on this absolutely ai can pose significant risk when it comes to democracy in the US in any country given how powerful they are so i completely agree with the executive order the ability for the reader to be able to distinguish if a real person wrote that or is an opinion of a person that they actually know and follow versus the opinion of a text that was generated by a language model without 
really the context that us as humans have when we are reading something. So it, it is important for us to have all the information available to us to make an informed decision. And we need to be able to trust those information. So if I can't really distinguish between a writing that someone who's credible, let's say, in the news area wrote versus an AI-generated one, I can't really know which one is the truth, right? We're expecting that the news is telling us the truth, but if AI generated it and it hallucinated something, I wouldn't know as a reader. So it is important for me to have the appropriate information. And by having those watermarks in it, it enables me to read that piece. Maybe I get a new idea from that piece. But at the same time, I know that this is not a piece that was based on a journalist's work. For example, if you're talking about the, with regards to news. So this is the aspects of it that is very important. And the, exactly as you mentioned, the executive order tried to address that as well. So just as a follow-on, so you think watermarking will solve that problem for us, Dr. Mahmoudian? This whole issue of deep fakes? At least it's the first step. Obviously, there are areas that it's also public information, the public education aspect of it. Because I might read a piece, and if I'm a reader that's not a tech-savvy person, AI generated it. I assume that it just read everything online and just summarize it for me. I may not know that it hallucinated and said some untrue stuff or completely factually wrong things into that piece of content or an image that was generated. I wouldn't know about that, even though there is a label that says AI generated, right? So it's that aspect of also, in addition to that, again, educating the public about also their role in digesting those information and also being responsible in thinking about, am I actually looking at a fact or it's just a created or hallucinated information that I'm receiving? So basically, I think, Dr. Mamudian, what you're saying is, and I agree, education is going to be critical, whether it is a population that wants to be reskilled, whether it's the population that's going to consume AI information, whether it's hallucinated, false. We are in an era, if we really don't educate ourselves, either we, there could be job losses or there could be dangers to our democracy. But I think those are great points. And Dr. Mahmoudian, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule. This has been tremendously helpful and we'll look to having you over because there's so many questions I had as a follow-on, but we'll leave it for another time. Thank you so much, Dr. Mahmoudian. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.